Welcome to episode 8 of the podcast. We've been looking forward to this episode for weeks. Today we have Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro all the way from the USA to discuss gut health and the gut microbiome. If you look Dr. Gabrielle up, you'll find an impressive list of education, credentials and experience from a PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise to placing first in women's physique bodybuilding in 2015, powerlifting, jiu-jitsu, and as a dog lover, we love how she says she enjoys spending time with her dogs in her free time. (laughs) Gabrielle, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and working with the time difference between Kenya and the USA. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad that you included um, that I love dogs yeah. as well. I actually have dogs and cats, so um, all, all around the oh, lover. And that's, yeah, how many dogs? Um, sharing, I, I feel like I have many stepdogs <laughs> and I share dogs. But um, So I have one rescue that I've had for, oh, 10 years now, wow. almost. Um, and then I have a cat that I've also rescued um, for oh, about the same amount of time. So uh, my dog came from a kennel and my cat um, from my, my old PhD advisor. Oh, um, and then I, I have what I would consider to be like four step dogs <laughs> of close friends and whatnot and, um, that I spend a lot of time with and visit when I can. So I just, I love them. Oh, I know. We, Andy's got a whole pack of dogs as well. We were just discussing dog microbiomes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's my dog's peak week. We got dog show on the weekend. So we got peak week. Yeah, so make sure. So I've got practice starts this. Make but, sure their guts are good. I've got I've also got rescue donkeys. I've got horses. That's why I live in the country. So I've got five horses, which are all rescues. And... Wow. More donkeys, but I'm meant to be getting two more rescue donkeys. <laughs> oh, chaos. chaos on the farm. Wow. Wonderful. That chaos. sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. of my dreams is to have like a, a goat. Like a, I want to get like a pygmy goat. They're just the best oh, things yeah. ever. Well, it's my dogs if I eat it. I mean, we, 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 we slaughter goats here for dog food. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be a good myself. idea. It's a nice way of getting mostly from the maps, like herdsmen. I find them directly great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't have any judgment. Yeah, there's no... Yeah, it's the circle of life. I have no, no judgment. <laughs> it is. So, I mean, listeners might have heard of Renaissance periodization and Dr. Mike is retail. Um, and you're part of that team. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so Dr. Mike found me back in 2016. Um I, I want to say 2014, 15, it might have been 2017. I feel like the years are just going by in a strange way, especially this one. Um, so I was uh, an assistant professor of exercise science um, out here in uh, near Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and I had been doing that for three years. By the time Dr. Mike found me, I had no social media presence really to speak of. I had um, earned my doctorate in the area of gut microbiome, but didn't intend to do anything really with it. I just wanted to teach. So I was at a a pretty small institution um, teaching sport nutrition primarily and anatomy and physiology and some various exercise science courses. And I had a little bit of a blog and I was earning my um, sport nutritionist certification through the ISSN. 
and having a, a cordial debate in that Facebook group, and that's where he found me, um, saw my, my limited social media content and reached out to me with a business proposition. And I thought like, what is this? Is this like an MLM sort of scheme thing? And then I realized who it was and you know, who our, our Renaissance periodization was. Um, and, and just coincidentally, it was sort of serendipitous about a year prior, I had seen their um, ads on Facebook for their Australia uh, conference. And I thought, oh man, you know, wouldn't that be the life to be able to, to travel internationally and speak about this stuff and you know, and. Um, then it, it, you know, the opportunity presented itself. And so I started, um, coaching with them while I was still teaching, uh, for about a year. And then I had to kind of make the decision between, you know, moving toward coaching full time, which I found to be incredibly fulfilling and, and, you know, have the speaking opportunities and whatnot, um, or commit to, you know, going up for promotion within a year, um, as a, as a professor. And at that point, juncture, I realized that the academic career that I um, was pursuing wasn't really as fulfilling as I had anticipated. I wasn't really able to make the type of connections that I found to be, um, you know, most, most kind of like rewarding. And um, I found that dynamic in coaching. And so I ended up resigning. And um, after four years, and then I've been coaching full time and started my own business about a year ago as well. And um, so now I run, I do both of those and it's amazing. I love it. That sounds really busy. Yeah, it is. It is. I, um, I'm excited. Like this weekend I get to, I'll have the weekend off, but um, yeah, it's a lot of like kind of, if you don't carve out time to say like, okay, I'm going to commit to not working like one day a week, you can easily just work literally every day. I mean, there's always projects and, and clients and whatnot. So um, that was a, a challenging lesson in, governing myself <laughs> yeah and then I mean, we were just saying before we started recording how it's wonderful how you come on to so many podcasts to educate about the gut microbiome and and gut health and I think that's just such a an incredible thing to do thank you thank you I'm glad I mean like I said I'm grateful for the opportunity and um, I really just want to help to empower people because this is an area that has so much kind of misinformation and, and marketing and um, you know, people are sort of at risk of, you know, being taken advantage of. Yeah. And so when you started out, um, were you always sort of going along the path of studying the microbiome or how did you get into the, that field? This was a total accident. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, when I realized that I want to be a professor, it was in my junior year of undergrad and I made the transition. So I actually, I was a music major originally. Um, I didn't have like a scientific background at all, you know, so it was sort of, uh, I, I transitioned because I realized that I wasn't super passionate about like music history and, um, and, and I, while I love to sing, I wasn't really big into all of the instruments and whatnot. So I transitioned to recreational therapy because I thought, you know, I really love being outdoors and I love hiking. That was like a newfound love for me and I want to help people. But then I didn't want to do the whole like living in the woods for two weeks thing that was required as part of that major. And I was like, oh, what else can I do that's like gym and science? And then I, I came upon exercise science. So when I went on to get my PhD, I actually went right from bachelor's to PhD and I had interned in a lab um, that was focused on skeletal muscle metabolism because I was just like obsessed with skeletal muscle. I was like, oh, sliding filament theory and metabolic biochem, so fascinating. You know, I'm gonna figure out like what makes muscles grow and so that was my project originally, was I was looking at the interaction of high-fat feeding 
on um, uh, mechanisms of hypertrophy. And so I was working in this, uh, working with rodents, and then we, I, I was, I, I was, I guess, okay at us animal husbandry, and so I was working with uh, a few different labs and our labs, and I was often doing like the intraperitoneal injections and things like that, and handling the mice, and we were injecting them with something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide, uh, and it's an endotoxin that comes from certain bacteria in the gut. And when it binds to specific immune receptors that are found sort of in, in a variety of body tissues, it creates this inflammatory response. And when we do that to in, in, and look at the effects on skeletal muscle, we find that it makes the skeletal muscle a little bit insulin resistant and also less able to fully break down fats. And so we're left with um, sort of these potentially inflammatory um, uh, the, uh, metabolites from that incomplete fatty acid breakdown. And I was like, well, okay, this is cool. We're finding mechanisms, but why LPS? Like, why are we injecting these mice? What are we actually mimicking? And then that's when I came to find out that, oh, this is something that actually comes from the intestinal tract of humans. And so this is something that we're mimicking in humans, and that phenomenon is called metabolic endotoxemia. So there was a theory that um, individuals with obesity and or individuals eating a high-fat diet would have um, some increased leakiness of the gastrointestinal tract, more of that LPS entering the bloodstream, and then that was part of, of the cause of metabolic dysregulation in these people. And I was like, well, why aren't we looking in the gut? Doesn't that seem to, you know, get to the, the cause of the problem, get to the root? And my PI was, uh, you know, understandably kind of like, well, we're, that's not our thing. Like, we're a skeletal muscle phys lab and, and, and you know, biochem lab. We don't look in the gut. Um, but I'm like insatiably curious. And so I asked a couple more times and he said no a couple more times until finally we got some funding um, from a probiotics company that said like, hey, we want to see what the effects might be on, on, you know, metabolic processes. And so he said, hey, well, do you want this to be your side project? And I was like, oh, man, yeah, this is awesome. And so my side project was looking at the potential protective role of probiotics in high fat feeding. So months down the line, you know, six months later, I've completed the first iteration of my uh, main project without a hitch. Everything w went to plan um, except for the storage of the uh, skeletal muscle <laughs> samples, which were like the most important part. Uh, they just, you know, they weren't fully frozen. Someone put them in the freezer and then they leaked and all of the ink came off and it was like, this is, we can't use these samples. Fortunately, I had my side projects still the probiotics and so my my you know i'm in the middle of a nervous breakdown and my um my advisor's like well you know you've got your side project and that seems what you 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 really interested in that let's just make that your main project i was like okay sure so um three years later we've gone through like multiple cohorts of mice and then i was invited to um take part in this first iteration of a fellowship on the scholarship of teaching and learning and so I stayed on for two extra years and helped a little bit more with like our follow-up human uh, study. But really, I wanted to just go on to teach. I mean, it was a means to an end for me to get my PhD and become a faculty member at a teaching-heavy institution. So I was like, okay, I got that gut stuff done and out of the way. Dissertation's good. Peace. I'm out. And it wasn't until I you know, started working with RP and then was considering making the shift to coaching full-time that um, Dr. Mike was actually the one who said, like, hey, didn't you have, like, a doctorate in gut health or something? Like, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, like, years ago, you know? 
do I still have to talk about that? And he's like, well, it might be a good idea because look at like the, the voices in the sphere right now, you know, most people don't have their doctorate, like get on some podcasts. I was like, oh, okay, I guess. And I went on with Revive Stronger. That one, it was like back in 2017, I think June of 2017. And it was like one podcast and then like, okay, one more podcast a couple weeks later and then another one. And and I, I, it's been a snowball effect and I have no idea. I mean, I'm like, really, I'm so flattered and honored, but like, I, I'm like, there's a podcast every week, you know, like I never thought that I was going to be in this place talking about the gut microbiome. Um, because when I finished in, in back in 2014, it wasn't a super hot topic, yeah. you know, people were kind of like, Oh, so you like probiotics. Okay, cool. And now it's like the gut health is the cause of, and cure to all diseases. Yeah. So, yeah. It's been a crazy ride. Wow. That, that is crazy. I didn't, I did I never even thought that such things would happen to samples <laughs> like that. That's awesome. I didn't either. <laughs> so it was so awful it was a bad day but it's worked out so well because gosh what if i were just a hypertrophy researcher yeah yeah no that's incredible (laughs) well i'm trying to think when i started to first hear about gut gut health i think i was i I used to work in a in a tourism camp and i think it was back then and even then i was like well what is gut health and it's like is that sort of scoring a number four on the bristol (laughs) stool chart every day um like "Mm, so I guess that's a, another good point to start. Like, what is gut health? I mean, should we even be calling... It's the, the second brain, apparently, yeah? Brain, <laughs> brain, yeah. yeah. That's what um, you hear everywhere. <laughs> I know, yeah. That's like the... That's the... I think that might be the top question that I'm asked on podcasts. And I kind of... I feel a little bit bad because I haven't, like, created a really good canned answer yet for, for my response. Um, and that's because there are so many... I think there are so many interpretations um, of the term gut health and um, different uses. So, you know, when we look in terms of, you know, what what we see um, sold as gut health on Instagram and whatnot, it is really a catch-all phrase and it's a it's a big buzzword. Yeah. That yeah, and, and it's really used to um, it can be used as a, a problem, you know, so that we can sell you something. So you have yeah. bad gut health. And so I have to sell you this supplement or this program or whatever so that you can have good gut health. And it's also become this strange sort of like, I think it's like a very um, kind of like privileged, like ableist new paradigm for health. Like, you know, good good gut health. You have to have 50 different plants in your diet every week and, you know, like eating organic and all of this stuff, you know, like these things are all bad for gut health and these are good for gut health. And because it's this nebulous term, people can kind of use it in whatever way they want. And and I'm hesitant, you know, even when I make posts or I'm like writing a book, I don't know what to call it because I don't want to say gut health because yeah. I, I know what people are thinking. And I'm like, it's, but it's not that. Yeah. It's like when I say the word holistic and people think automatically certain things. And I'm like, no, I just mean like considering the whole organism. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so that's the problem with the term gut health is that, we don't have one profile of gut health, that healthy controls around the world look very different. We do have some keystone species, we call them. So these are groups of bacteria that are generally abundant in people who are free of disease mm-hmm. and who are physically active and eat a diverse diet that's high in microbe accessible carbohydrates. 
So we can look at those. We can look at, you know, like bifido, lactobacilli, acromantia, rosbiria, um, uh, decalibacterium. Those guys should probably be there. But that's about as much as we could say. We don't know that, you know, there's not a specific ratio of, of these species that we're looking for. We can't use, you know, we can't quantify them and say this level is a clinical cutoff for good versus bad gut health. So we look at them, we can look at them as sort of like an ecosystem perspective and say like, oh, okay, well, we're looking out like, oh, I'm out in the desert. Yeah, well, we expect to see scorpions. We expect to see coyotes and wolves and we expect to see a lot of cacti. But we can't say like, oh, below this number of cacti, this is this desert is in bad health, yeah. you know. So we kind of look at the overall diversity. Um, so and that refers to the um, the abundance of species. So the number of different species, and then their relative abundance to one another. So sort of their ratio to one another. And we generally want to see more of the bacteria that are or microorganisms, I should say that uh, seem to confer some health benefit. So they might be producing some beneficial compounds we call postbiotics. There are also a group that don't seem to do anything of great benefit to us, but they're not harmful either. And then there are a group that could be potentially pathogenic. We don't want to get rid of the pathogens because they play an important role in our immune system. Yeah. You sort of think of it like, we don't want to grow up in a bubble and, and never have any exposure to pathogens, yeah. our immune system will develop. So it's the same way internally as it is externally. So we look at the ratio of all of those, but again, we don't have one specific ratio that seems to be right or good or healthy. And then on the other hand, when we say bad gut health, uh, people often use this interchangeably with the term dysbiosis, but dysbiosis, okay. pardon? The new bookie man. Yes, exactly. So new, yes, yes. Dysbiosis, exactly. So this is like dysbiosis. Say people will say, "Oh, dysbiosis causes whatever disease they want to come up with." Well, dysbiosis just means altered compared to the the you know diseased group. So it doesn't necessarily mean that those people that that is like the picture. Or excuse me, uh, dysbiosis is altered compared to the healthy group. But we don't have one form. Uh, you know, we don't have like disease specific dysbios dysbioses. Um, so a person with IBD who had, uh, you know, they will have something different from a healthy control, but they may not have the same as another person with IBD. So we're still working on trying to characterize, you know, disease specific profiles, but we're just not there yet because the way that we um, analyze the microbial um, uh, individuals, I'm going to say the microbial population um, and the genes that varies from study to study. So when we say something like good gut health, I think what people probably mean is the combination of a diverse microbiome that has um, a beneficial uh, ratio that we haven't been able to characterize yet, but we kind of know it when we see it, yeah. and um, a, a gastrointestinal tract that has a normal anatomy and physiology, and that they have comfortable bowel movements and not so much gas. Yeah. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, those three don't correlate exactly. So we don't have an outward symptom necessarily of something that could be considered dysbiosis. And we can have GI distress and have a diverse microbiome. So what people are doing is kind of taking a discomfort, feelings of discomfort or some disease or, you know, inability to lose weight or acne or a rash and saying, oh, this is from bad gut health. Yeah, I mean, the, the microbiome is is incredible and I mean when when does that sort of 
I'm trying to say, when does that kind of start? Like, when do you sort of cultivate your microbiome? Is it, I mean, when you're born or is it sort of from early childhood? You know, it's really interesting because for many years, they assumed that the GI tracts of um, infants uh, in utero was sterile and that their first inoculation was through the vaginal canal and that it was the vaginal microbiota that were um, colonizing infants' GI tracts. But then in recent years, with the improvements in technology and, and more data collection, they found that there, there may be evidence of some colonization in utero. Um, but it, it's, it's sort of a, a controversial topic, and some people say, no, that's just contamination of the samples. You know, how did the bacteria get in there? You know, would they potentially, like, transverse the, you know, through the placenta and whatnot? Um, or is it, you know, umbilical? So that's still up in the air. Yeah, and then what I think is kind of the most humorous um, I, realization recently, because it just makes people a little bit squeamish, is that it's actually not really the, the vaginal microbiota. That's largely lactobacilli. And in, vaginal, in vaginally birthed infants, the initial and uh, primary group are bifidobacteria, and those are fecal. So it's really more likely that it's because of the proximity of the vaginal canal to the rectum and the anus that the infant is actually being inoculated with colonic bacteria from the mother. Um, so if people were like already uncomfortable with thinking that it was like vaginal, yeah. I don't know if that's better or worse <laughs> for them, but you know, it just makes people feel like, oh, yeah. um, and, <laughs> that during birth. Um, is that during birth that would happen? Yes. During yep. Birth? It's during birth. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So um, because the baby passes through the vaginal canal, quite often women might have a bowel movement, yeah. you know, in the mm -hmm. process of giving birth. Um, and, you know, and the bacteria are just, they just exist in that region. So it's going to be exposed to the vaginal uh, microbiota as well. But um, because of the uh, initial, well, and, and the delivery mode and, and breastfeeding or bottle feeding can make a difference too, but um, that and then followed up with breastfeeding and just the anatomy of the GI tract, um, bifido uh, of the infant GI tract, bifido seemed to be more prevalent in um, vaginally birthed breastfed babies. On the other hand, if a baby is born via C-section, uh, we, we see that there's a uh, what you could consider to be dysbiosis in those first several months of life, that they're more heavily populated by skin bacteria. They don't see as, as much of a representation of those bifidobacteria. Um, and we can also see that with babies that are bottle fed as well, um, because human milk contains a specific type of carbohydrate, um, human milk oligosaccharides that are not yet replicated in a lab. And those are um, preferentially uh, metabolized by the bifidobacteria. And so um, there's some evidence and there are theories uh, that are fairly well supported so far that those differences could be part of the explanation in why babies who are born uh, via C-section and or bottle fed seem to have a greater uh, likelihood of developing allergies and skin conditions, um, perhaps because of that initial delay in the establishment of, of what we would consider to be an early um, microbiome. And then we see 
things are fairly stable until we get to um, weaning and then the introduction of solid foods, then we see a much, a huge bloom in diversity. So instead of just looking at like, you know, mostly bifido and some lactobacilli, then we see, um, you know, other, other genera and other species are represented um, and things stabilize as the diet stabilizes once we get into childhood things stay relatively the same. Even if we have an intervention or an illness or antibiotics, they estimate about 60 to 80% of your microbial profile pretty much sticks with you until you get to be about 60 or 70 years of age. And then you see reductions in diversity um, kind of going backwards in, you know, to, to the direction that we might see in infancy. And that seems to be exacerbated in individuals who are put into um, like an assisted living home. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. Um, okay. So it's so important, sort of the early, the early days, as oh, it yes. were. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, was, absolutely. I and, was uh, it. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just I thinking. Was say... It's a bit of a flourish. Was... Yeah. I was gonna say it must be a bit of. Let's start picking things off the floor and sticking them in their mouth. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, generally and, and find. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what. That's why I was going to ask. Say, for example, kids born in. Uh, Say guys who live in, you know, like um, in the wild compared to guys who live in the city. Does that change sort of the ratios you were talking about or you've not gotten that deep into the research? or? Oh, no, it absolutely does. Yeah. So that's one of the um, main, uh, I would say, deciding factors in, in how closely um, two microbiomes will cluster if we look at them, you know, in terms of their their similarity or dissimilarity. Um, that's why I mentioned, you know, by region, if we take two healthy controls and one is from Kenya and the other one's from the U.S., yeah. they will both be considered healthy, but they'll both look very different. different. And when we compare um, diversity in individuals who are from uh, rural or agrarian societies versus those who are from industrialized societies, uh, there's a significant differences in diversity. So there's a theory that in individuals who are living in industrialized societies, um, due to a number of different factors, we're less active. We have a lower amount of uh, micro-accessible carbohydrates because we're not eating as much fiber. Um, there's greater um, sterilization that we have reduced diversity and that that's actually been passed down generationally. So from mother to offspring, because we're inheriting our our microbiota really from our mother. And so that's passed down. Um, Whereas in, you know, these more rural and agrarian societies, they have a a much higher intake of fiber and micro accessible carbohydrates, more resistant starches and whole grains and, and things like that. And um, potentially also because they're more physically active and they have greater exposure to, you know, dirt and things like that outside, um, that they have a, a just a wider variety of organisms in their GI tract. Um, and they're sort of also specialized in some ways that their, their uh, microbiota are really adept at taking those indigestible, um, the indigestible sort of residue from the diet and fermenting it to short chain fatty acids that can then be taken up by the host and actually used for energy. Now in, in industrialized societies, we may still have that capacity, but it's not so much of a benefit to us. You know, we don't need enhanced energy harvesting capacity because we already have plenty of energy in the diet. So it's something that could be beneficial in in context, but you know, not for every individual. Is there a difference? I know you just thought about geographically, 
difference in social and economic groups, as in, like, you know, poorer members of society to more affluent. Yeah. That could, yeah, and that could be part of what we're seeing, you know, in terms of what's being reflected um, in those more like rural and agrarian societies versus, um, you know, the industrialized, like westernized, you know, looking at the United States versus, um, you know, uh, uh, like subsistence farmers and things like that, that um, it could be that because of the other factors that go into socioeconomic status, that those would kind of be indirectly affecting, you know, the members of the of the microbiome. Yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of something like, you know, Kenya and a lot of East Africa have gone through a sort of a, um, a growing middle class situation where a lot of people's parents, or at least grandparents, were living off the land as subsistence farmers or herders, and now living in cities with yeah. burger kings. Dominoes and all this other stuff. Yeah, (laughs) suddenly, you know, they've got a house built for dealing with, I don't know, Sakuma Wiki and grains and beans, and suddenly having fast food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is part of the theory, uh, you know, behind why. it's diff- it, well, part of the explanation behind why it's difficult to establish, you know, healthy microbial profiles or dysbiosis. You could look at uh, a healthy individual in the U.S. compared to a subsistence farmer or someone who's maybe, you know, second generation and, you know, maybe they're living in a city, but their mother was, you know, in, in that group that would be, that would have a very diverse microbiome adept at, you know, um, managing those, that those like less refined foods. And perhaps the individual in the U.S. would be, uh, would have dysbiosis in comparison, just because of the many generations behind them that were living off of a highly refined diet. Um, and, and so that's, you know, I, there's a, a book called um, The Good Gut by the Sonnenbergs, and they're researchers, I believe, out of Stanford. And they've actually, they discussed this as one of the theories um, behind sort of this just loss of diversity over time as we've moved away from, um, you know, that those kind of more, more challenging um, lifestyles where we're highly physically active, we have a very unrefined diet, and we're eating a higher proportion of plant foods versus animal foods, so greater abundance of microaccessible carbohydrates, um, and you know, and then that being passed on from mother to child, and then of course, you know, the difference in sanitation and things like that. So um, it it may be that our you know our microbiomes are they're changing with us. Um, but they're adapting to their environment as well, just like we do. And so, you know, we lose diversity if we limit the the diversity of nutrients available to them. Yeah, I think Andy, didn't you read a study about hunter gatherers and their oh, microbiome? Yeah, yep, yep. It rolls out in most of the studies and research read on gut health. Because yeah, they're just from Tanzania, so they're not, you know, neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I would say they're local, but Tanzania's a big country. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's what um, the Sonnenbergs, they, they discuss their dietary habits and whatnot. And um, I mean, it's really interesting to, you know, look into those differences. And I think really points to the, um, the likelihood of, of the, 
necessity of having a variety of plant foods in one's diet, you know, if they're concerned about gut health. Yeah. So can we just sort of... On that, just quickly before, because I know Cleo's about to ask a question. (laughs) On that, um, could, if you've grown up in a sort of, say, North North Kenya, where it's quite droughty and food can be scarce, and you've got a few generations behind you, when you're suddenly in the city and eat fast food, could this have an effect on weight gain because your microbiome's better generating the fatty acids from a very small amount of food and then knock on effectively this weight gain? Yeah, I would say there's probably going to be um, an additive effect. You know, obviously, if we're eating um, highly palatable and refined foods, it's easier to overconsume those foods. So there would be potential for weight gain just from the change in energy intake and the change in energy expenditure. Could then the, the microbiota also contribute to that? Potentially, um, because it looks like in those individuals who are, um, you know, taking in upwards of 100, 150 grams of fiber per day, um, and sort of the ratio of indigestible carbs to digestible carbs is so much higher that they may see um, energy harvesting of anywhere from five to about twenty percent um, of the of their caloric intake. So that means if you are if you were to be counting and oh I think I'm taking in two thousand calories a day, but I also have these micro uh, organisms that are have harvesting extra energy for me it might be that we're getting an extra 400 calories per day on top of that, um, which we, it would really be possible to account for. So yeah, they certainly could, you know, they increase the, the energy availability from the foods that we're eating. But the flip side of that is that if we're going from a diet that is very high in microaccessible carbohydrates to one that's completely, you know, refined flour, we're not going to be providing as much of the substrate to those bacteria to produce the short chain fatty acids. So in that respect, it may be that um, maybe by having, you know, a, a no fiber in the diet, we can actually be more accurate in the number of calories that, that we're absorbing, but I wouldn't recommend that, um, you know, because uh, by and large, the effects of dietary fiber um, are, are positive. I mean, you know, some of them can cause some GI distress, but when those bacteria are fermenting dietary fibers, even if they are producing short-chain fatty acids, um, propionate, for one example, is um, helps to modulate, and so does butyrate, actually. They both modulate appetite. Butyrate is also an energy source for those colonic cells. So it's probably not going to contribute to um, you know, a, a, an excess of energy that would be potentially problematic to us. Yeah. Now, I was just going to ask to go maybe a few steps back and just look at fiber, um, yeah. as that just seems such an important part of, you know, as what they're sort of feeding off. Like, can you break down the fiber and it's soluble and insoluble and all that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and microbe accessible carbohydrates, um, you know, all, all fibers are microbe accessible carbohydrates, but not all macs are limited to fiber. So we also have resistant starches. Um, so you could think of, you know, a starch is going to be long chains of uh, glucose and glucose is our cells, you know, kind of primary energy source. 
And then when we look at, and those are held together by bonds that we can break. So we have digestive enzymes that can break down starches, not so much with the resistant starches, which is why they're microbe accessible. But when it comes to dietary fibers, because of the chemical bonds between each of the, the monomers, each of the single units, we can't break that down. And so those go to the large intestine where they can be uh, broken down by the bacteria there. Not all of those fibers, though, are going to be preferentially used by the bacteria. They really like the soluble fibers, so the type that would get um, soft in, in water, that would absorb water. Uh, the insoluble fibers aren't as readily fermentable. And so those are the things that are really structural. Mm -hmm. Like if you eat celery, you get the long stalks of, you know, the long strings mm -hmm. of celery. Um, so both of them play a role in um, helping to create comfortable bowel movements. Um, soluble fiber can help with uh, absorption of excess cholesterol as well. But it's really the soluble fibers that are going to be fermented by the bacteria there. In most cases, you're getting both soluble and insoluble in your fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. So the casings are usually going to be primarily insoluble fiber, and then the softer parts are going to be where we're going to get more of the soluble fiber. But if you're eating a wide variety of plant matter in your diet, you're going to get a variety of fiber types. Um, and that's really kind of the, the top recommendation. Um, because we don't know which bacteria like which type of fiber. So it's mm. like, just throw it all in there and, and, you know, see what they like. Now, because they're fermentable, they can lead to the production of gases as well as short-chain fatty acids. And so that can cause GI upset. Um, some of them also pull water into the gut, and that can have a laxative effect. So sometimes people will think that maybe they have bad gut health or that they're eating, you know, uh, a food that's damaging the gut, because they're feeling some gas floating and maybe having some loose stools. And in that case, you know, barring any sort of disease that we, you know, we can write that off, then it's usually just due to um, exceeding their tolerable amount of those various fiber types and, and carbohydrate types that are fermentable. And in that case, they can go through a systematic process of um, testing those out and back in to see how they feel. Um, but I think we want to be very careful about sort of writing fiber off and completely and going kind of the carnivore diet way, um, just because we, there are so many benefits to fiber. We know that this is, like you said, it's a, it's a, a preferred substrate for those bacteria. And um, though they can use amino acids to a limited extent, we generally see a significant loss of diversity uh, in both animal and human models that have a fiber deficient or completely like zero fiber diet. And then some of those bacteria will turn to the protective mucus layer in the large intestine as a source of uh, carbohydrate. And that's probably not a good thing. Mm. Yeah, well, I... I, I need to increase my diversity of plants. Yeah. <laughs> it's been on the low end. But so how much fiber would you recommend? Or is that sort of going to be individual? Yeah, I mean, in, so in the U.S., we have uh, the dietary guidelines, and they recommend 25 grams of fiber per day for a female and 38 for a male. Um, they, uh, there's also, there are other recommendations that are about 14 to 15 grams of fiber per 1000 kilocalories ingested, which usually comes out to about that anyway. Yeah. Um, there was a, a study done a couple years ago where they, you know, they, they, they sent out questionnaires. It was just observational to see like, you know, sending out questionnaires, um, to see how many different types of plants people were eating each day and then compared those to the diversity in their fecal samples. 
And they found that the people who were eating 30 different plants each week had the greatest diversity in their fecal samples. Wow. We've got and that sounds like a lot, but it doesn't have to be 30, 30 different vegetables. Yeah. It's, you know, plants are, you know, whole grains, legumes, mm -hmm. fruits, and vegetables. Um, but again, as I mentioned, you know, like gut health can be a little bit um, like uh, elitist, you know, like, oh, 30 different yeah. plants. And like, here's my acai bowl <laughs> with 800 different yeah. unique berries in it. And, you know, like just do your best. If you're eating some plants at every meal, you're doing more than most people are doing. But just uh, do what I do. You stir fry, packs of stir fry vegetables. They've got all sorts in there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, Easy. It's like you've said, um, it's just got me thinking. Because we, I know all of us train, and okay. you've noticed with bodybuilders the way you've said it's fourteen grams per thousand calories. We eat so many calories, but it, I don't think it matches up. We think of you know, uh, I'll eat forty grams of fiber, I'm good. But when you look at it, you're eating five thousand, four thousand calories a day, so the the fiber well, still is a bit low. You think around your training window about those. That white rice or whatever's easy to yeah. digest. Yeah, you're not thinking. Yeah, if, I, if Ollie knew how much fiber I have in my diet, if I tell me off, because he's always telling me to <laughs> keep to about 30 grams, but I have about 70 plus mm -hmm. every wow. day. But I digest it well. That's because I use all my stir fry vegetables and I have all my berries in my, in my uh, protein pot. Yeah, and stuff. But, you know, It's just, um, but I digest them well. I know some people do get gut distress, mm -hmm. but generally... I've also built up to that, I think. Yeah, because yeah, right. yeah. most bodybuilders yeah, most bodybuilders will complain about, you know, gas or uh, mm -hmm. having bad digestion when yeah. maybe it could be less fiber. I don't know. Or, or yeah. when calories are low and you're eating more sort of volume. Yeah, you're having, you're having more fiber than, than, you, than normal. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Fiber plays yeah. a great role when you're, you're, you're in prep. Just mm -hmm. to try to fill you up, but <laughs> as you get close to the dough, you want to try and cut the fiber out to stop the you know, keep your stomach, your waist as small as possible. Yeah. But um, mm -hmm. these are the things. But I suppose when you you're in the bulking phase, Leon, like you, you know you've been eating for fun recently. <laughs> um, you know you want to create those calories for for your proteins and your yeah and, I and, and, and do rice. I do a lot of berries, fruits, and he gets all his fiber from chips. And oh, I, I no from the oats. It's just, it's not it's just, not filling. You just don't want to do filling on your bowl. Yeah, you've got to eat so much anyway. Extra fiber is something like, oh, geez. You know, it takes you about 45 minutes to eat a meal. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Sometimes. When, when you were competing, Gabrielle, did you kind of, were you yeah. like making notes on, and you're sort of, Gut health and microbiome as you as, were as going you... through the cutting and the bulking. Oh and... gosh, um, you know what's so funny? I, um, I I I was glad that like no one lived with me when I was at the tail end of prep <laughs> because my my stuff. If I didn't know about gut health, I would have been like, there is something wrong. Yeah, because I was. <laughs> um, but you know, at the time, because that was back in twenty fifteen, I want to say so it was a little ways ago. Um, and that was before I had, you know, really gotten like given a deep dive into like FODMAP. So that's the, the fermentable yeah. carbohydrates and, um, you know, really had, had realized kind of the, the practical applications. I mean, because studying the gut microbiome is 
is different than studying, you know, the effects of, uh, is different from studying like the more practical, like, you know, dietary effects on, you know, our, our subjective feelings of fullness and bloating and things like that. So when I, so, so yeah, like toward the end of my show, I was eating lots of apple and avocado. Um, and you know, for my, for my, like apple was like my main carb source and a little bit of oatmeal. And then I was eating like avocado and, um, I think asparagus and I would put like onions in with my squash. So I was just eating a lot of like really super gas forming foods. And, um, you know, I remember years ago when I started taking whey protein, which I, I don't anymore. Um, but you know, I didn't know that like whey protein concentrate was going to in undergrad was going to cause like such severe GI distress, you know, cause of lactose intolerance. So at that time I wasn't thinking about it too much. Um, and now I'm glad that I've kind of, you know, figured things out along the way because now I can eat foods, still have a, a varied and diverse diet, but it's foods that are comfortable to me. And I know if I eat more than like a quarter of an apple, I'm going to, you know, feel like bloated and awful. And like, I really don't do well with squat or with uh, avocado either. So um, I think what can happen is, you know, people who are eating these very nutritious foods that are kind of. I, I want to say like stereotypical, you know, like fitness foods, avocado toast, you yeah. know, and like who thinks that apples are going to cause them to bloat, but that's what happens. And then people become really confused and think they have to do some like super extreme, you know, gut cleanse or reset or something. Um, well, when really it's just, yeah, it could be the amount of fiber that you're eating. So above 70 grams a day is when people start to, you know, experience some GI distress. Um, or it's the types that you're eating. So if you're eating a lot of those fermentable carbohydrates, then yeah, you could, you know, potentially be getting some GI distress or sugar alcohols. Oh my gosh, you know, in protein bars, mm -hmm. aside from the erythritol, uh, all of the rest are extremely fermentable. And some bars will have like a, I don't know if you guys will have them, but they have an indication of like, you know, we'll have a laxative effect. Like don't eat more than two bars in a day. <laughs> oh yeah, Gr <laughs> grenade bars. Oh. No, I actually stopped eating protein bars. Yeah, the yeah, well, I'll, I'll smash protein bars. Just like yeah. in Kenya. Anyone in the UK, I'm at the airport, I get my can of Monster, I get my grenade bar, and I'm at the airport happy. But, but you're a fiber any, monster. But anyone listening, I will do not ever eat more than two bars. You will regret it. I used to have two power <laughs> bites, bars a day. Yeah, until I just came back into Kenya. I used to get big delivered from Amazon. Actually, yeah. it, two a day, one with my post trading, and maybe one is later. Yeah, for me, it happened when I was actually reading about gut health and just random articles, and they were like, just don't do more than two bars. And my curiosity, I, I said, you know what? I'll... You tried it, didn't you? Yeah, oh, jeez. You had to see for yourself. Yeah, and I remember it was, I just, it's, it was like an hour just in the loo, and I'm like, what? Yeah. What happened? Like, <laughs> no, no, I know. No, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, I always think like, people jump to conclusions. They don't look very obvious. And a lot of people don't look at their vegetables and automatically go, oh, it must be yeah. grains or pasta or meat. Mm -hmm. or it must be the, the milk in my coffee. Which, yeah, you might have like a tiny splash of milk in the day, but automatically we go, like, diet. Or we do these food intolerance tests, which oh. the bag juices a chocolate <laughs> you know? Um, you know, let alone a vitamin test with the electric pen thing. And oh, go, yeah. oh, gosh, yeah. I'm telling you, we're yeah, in the wrong business. They, yeah. <laughs> they have so, so bad. Massively in Kenya. 
Kenya, yeah, because yeah, it's all new in Kenya, so people lap this up thinking that's all legit. It's all come from the US or the UK. It must be accurate. You know? Yeah. Also, the the detoxes and cleanses. What mm-hmm. what do you like? We well, we 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 find most of them, especially the ones promoted by influencers. They look more. It's just to sell you stuff. But mm-hmm. what's so your that must take? have a bad effect on your, yeah. your microbiome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so with detoxes and cleanses, I mean, you're really paying for someone to give you diarrhea. So, <laughs> like, you could do that for free if you just go drink some pond water. Like, if that's what you're looking for, you know, go get Giardia and you'll clean out real fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you love protein bars. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so so they cause diarrhea, um, which, you know, acutely would potentially clear out some of the the microorganisms that are sort of like um, in the when you look at the cross section of the gut, you got like your cells on the outside, you have a protective mucus layer. And then on the inside is kind of the the inside of the hose. And you have bacteria that are kind of swimming around in the liquid in there. And you also have quite a few that are um, embedded in that initial mucus layer. So the mucus layer uh, microorganisms probably would still hang out, but stuff that's in the lumen or the center could potentially be flushed out uh, if you have severe diarrhea. Um, And then, of course, you have the risk, too, of, you know, dehydration um, and depending on how long you're going through with that nutrient deficiencies, you know, nutrient malabsorption. Um, so it's just not, it's not a, a good thing to do. And you don't need to detox or cleanse. Your gastrointestinal tract has these wave-like contractions that moves your food through. Um, even different from the ones that you can feel that like, oh, I have to have a bowel movement. It's doing this every few hours actually to kind of move things through. And it happens after you eat a meal, you have some contractions and it, it moves things through to make more room for that meal. Um, so you, you don't need to do that. There's no such thing as a gut reset. Um, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, but you can't, you know, turn it off and back on again. Um, it doesn't need to rest. You know, you, you could think of it like, um, you know, if we, if there's an ecosystem in trouble, um, we don't generally just like eradicate every living thing and then try to replenish it. That just wouldn't be possible. It's the same thing here. We can't eradicate all of it. We wouldn't want to anyway. There, when we look at um, like mice that are raised without a gut microbiome, we call them germ-free mice. They are not resistant to pathogenic infection. They don't uh, metabolize their, their food um, adequately. They are, if we do it from the time they're infants, they don't develop properly. I mean, their immune systems, their like neurological development. Oh, yeah, they're gonna start Andy's pack off. Welcome to, <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> yeah, please, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I guess, I guess they chased it away, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we definitely we don't want to do that. Hey, hey, stop! Sorry, hopefully you guys can. Oh, we don't mind. That's fine. Hey. Oh, she's. Away. What are you doing? <laughs> come on, come here. Oh my goodness. We oh, have. Uh, okay, 
Here's one of them. This is Shay. Oh, she's oh, an I... Australian Shepherd. Oh, nice. And Margo's, Margo's too short to, for to me come to up here. Yeah. She's, she's an old lady. She's a 12 year old beagle mix. Yeah. That wo- oh, my goodness. That woke up our dog. She's wondering, where are these dogs? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, what's happening? <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I guess it must have been the male person or something. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so where was I? So yeah, so so detoxes and cleanses, we just there's no um, practical application for them. They can really be dangerous. Uh, some of them are even uh, you know contain dangerous levels of heavy metals, um, potentially toxic parts of plants. Um, and so yeah, it is. It's just one of those things that's sort of sold as you know. Let me tell you that you have a problem, so that I can sell you the solution. So yeah. it's like you're just buying toxicity to make you almost sick mm-hmm. so you can yeah, exactly yes believe yes. you're flashing out stuff my goodness mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly yeah and some of them i've seen um there's one that contains some sort of specific fiber that causes your stool to to really um kind of stick together so it doesn't come out in normal like small sections yeah um it comes out sort of segmented but very long and then people are like oh my gosh i like flushed out all these toxins like all this fecal matter that was there for years like that is absolutely not how it works <laughs> it's just the ingredients uh, that add to it yeah yes. wow that's that's so crazy clay, clay is silly husk <laughs> yeah yeah, wow. yeah exactly so yeah, we talk about mucoid plaque yeah, yeah, that's oh, the yeah. new thing—digestive plaque. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, um, I wanted to just ask about, although I kind of know the answer because I've heard you speak about this before. Um, sweeteners, artificial sweeteners, like aspartame, only because you know. Only because he drinks five liters yeah. of diet coke a day. <laughs> no, you know what? I have this two liter bottle of diet coke now since I flew back and got in yesterday afternoon, and I've still not finished it. He so has he has one in think, every corner of the house. <laughs> but yeah, we might as well you know, just just talk about the effects of all the Latin effects on um, gut health, oh, gut microbiome, and uh, and sweetness. Sweetness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the the spoiler alert: the lack of effect. Yeah, um, yeah so it depends on, on the organism that you're looking at. So if people, so this is this is something that I really I think it's funny to point out too. So. If you were to do, you know, people are always like, oh, a meta-analysis or a systematic review. Those are sort of like the gold standard of, of you know, research um, because they compile all of the information and do, uh, in the case of a meta-analysis, like a secondary statistical analysis. And in a systematic review, you know, the, the authors aren't really supposed to be kind of like picking what articles they want to put in. You know, it's got to be a, a comprehensive um, search, literature search and they, they add in everything. Um, but there are narrative reviews where people can just kind of pick what they want that fits their narrative. And so if you wanted to write a narrative review to, to present um, artificial sweeteners in a very dangerous light, you could do that if you picked only the studies that are done in cell culture and maybe some of the poorly done rodent culture, rodent model studies, because those are where we see uh, an effect of of artificial sweeteners on you know cell culture on, on cells of the GI tract, um, or in rodents if we give them you know super physiological doses. When we take it to a human model, 
and we feed people even up to the acceptable daily intake range, which is a lot of artificial sweetener, like to the point that some people can't adhere because it's so much. Um, then in most cases, you see no effect on the microbiota, no effect on hormones um, released in the gastrointestinal tract. Now, there was a study done a couple years ago where they saw some derangements in insulin sensitivity in um, humans. And so they took, a fecal, they took fecal transplants from those humans, and they put them into rodents, and they were able to recapitulate uh, that, that finding. So they were able to um, repeat that in rodents. But there was no control group in that study. And so when it was replicated in a follow-up with the control group, they weren't able to replicate those findings. And so it's really important that, you know, we're looking at humans and uh, we're looking at physiological doses in humans when we make statements about the potential effects of artificial sweeteners on the gut microbiome or gut hormones. Um, of course, you know, people can look at other things like, oh, what are the neurological effects or, you know, the effects on like feeding behaviors and whatnot. And my argument is that feeding behaviors in humans are much more complex than feeding behaviors in rodents. So again, we can't extrapolate directly from rodent to human, nor can we extrapolate doses that we use in a rodent to the human model. You can't say two mg per kilogram in a rodent is not equivalent to two mg per kilogram in a human. Um, so those are some of the significant shortcomings. The other thing is there is a relatively limited amount of research um, in terms of like actual RCTs done in humans using artificial sweeteners um, and looking at the effects on the gut microbiome. The one that we have the most, which I think might be like four studies, would be aspartame, and that seems to be the uh, most benign. Um, and then there are some that we don't really have any data on, like stevia, um, That's we're just still kind of waiting to see what might happen. We've got some cell culture data on that, but again, it's not any more, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be weighted any different from cell culture data on um, sucralose or aspartame or anything else. Um, when we look at sugar alcohols, because those are fermented, they can have a prebiotic effect and a laxative effect. So you could say potentially sugar alcohols are kind of like good for the gut microbiome because they, they can metabolize them. Um, but in terms of like the non-nutritive artificial uh, sweeteners, thus far there's no reason to avoid them for the purposes of you know concerns about what they'll do to the gut microbiome. Andy, you can finish that bottle now. So apart from eating sort of a very, you know, very diet of, of, of the plants, would you recommend taking supplements, probiotics, prebiotics? And maybe could you just describe the difference between the two? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you wouldn't have to necessarily supplement with prebiotics. Um, prebiotics was a term coined, I want to say maybe, oh, was within the last few couple decades. I mean, it's, yeah. it's um, fairly recent. Um, and I was actually just listening to a podcast, a Sigma Nutrition podcast, and he had the, the faculty member on who coined the term prebiotics. It was funny because the faculty member thought that in his, in his um, uh, assertion was that that paper that he wrote that's been one of the most like highly cited functional foods papers in the history of publications, he didn't think that it was that good, but people <laughs> have really jumped on the prebiotics bandwagon. And prebiotics are just, um, they're, they're just the microbe accessible carbohydrates, really. So it's primarily dietary fibers. And so you wouldn't really have to supplement if you were eating, you know, a diet that's, that's high in, um, in a number of different plants. Um, and then in terms of probiotics, those are the live microorganisms that you would ingest that would confer some benefit to you. There are 
foods that are sold that are labeled as being kind of probiotic foods, uh, but we don't necessarily, but the, the, the microorganisms used to ferment foods aren't necessarily the same microorganisms that would have an effect in your GI tract. Um, and we don't know the dose required for an effect. And also we don't know what a number of bacteria might be present in that food source. So I think we have to be careful about saying that like, oh, you know, like kombucha or yogurt or kimchi or whatever are fermented foods. Mm -hmm. There's also a difference between something being pickled versus fermented. Um, and for some reason, I'm seeing people say that like pickles are, uh, you know, would contain bacteria. And I'm like, they're, they're pickled. I don't know where that comes from. But anyway, um, if we were to take a probiotic, uh, we have to realize that there, there is definitely something to probiotics. So probiotics do tend to have some benefit to humans, but the benefits seem to be fairly strain specific. So there's not like one probiotic that you would take to just like have general better health. Uh, you would take a specific strain or, or selection of strains because you have antibiotic associated diarrhea or you have colitis or because there's some evidence that they may um, uh, have an immune effect that reduces our, the severity of an upper respiratory tract infection. So you would want to make sure that, you know, if you're going to make that investment, that it is um, built on the foundation of a diet that's supportive of microbial diversity in the first place. And then you're adding those probiotics for an additional, you know, potential conferred benefit in, uh, a, in a specific way so that you're not like just pooping away your 30 to $50 a month or, you know, however much for probiotics, like use them in a way, you know, that they're intended to be used. Um, there certainly are applications for them, but I would say like kind of everything else has to come first. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, you've got a case here, you've got probiotics on the shelf, there's probiotics in the fridge and on the fridge are super expensive. But Very in Kenya, those would probably come from a sea container that wasn't refrigerated, been on the dock side for probably a, a month, month. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the shop it been sold at three times the amount. Is there a difference when it's genuinely cold-stored probiotic versus what they freeze-dried type? Uh, you know, it's it's that's a question that I think we're still waiting uh for the answer and along the same vein of, you know, is there a specific amount that we need? Do we have to take them more than once a day? Um, you know, I, there's pretty compelling evidence that more isn't necessarily better and that multiple strains aren't necessarily better than having like one strain of whatever you actually would need for whatever the issue is. Um, and even the definition might change because, you know, for like now, um, they, they're saying it's live microorganisms, but, there is evidence that even if they're not alive, that they could still have an effect um, passing through and that they don't necessarily need to enrich and they probably don't, that they probably are transient uh, inhabitants, but they interact with the other organisms on the way through. And that makes sense because the way that these organisms interact with each other is, um, you know, largely just kind of like cell, well, not all of them have a cell wall, but, you know, they, it's kind of a cell to cell contact. So they're looking for like a name badge 
you know, uh, across the way, well, what's your name? And, you know, even if the bacteria uh, or, or microorganism isn't alive, it could still potentially move through and have a name tag on and another cell senses it and says, oh, you know, oh, that's this guy. They're here now. Okay, well, let's change what we're doing because those guys showed up. Um, and then there are also, you know, these spore forming um, bacteria that are going to sort of a dormant state until they're in a place where they can thrive. Uh, but interestingly, I was at a microbiome conference at the beginning of the year um, talking to, you know, people. I don't consider myself, well, I guess I'm kind of a researcher now because I'm collaborating, but, you know, I'm more of like I'm a social media ex-academic. And um, I was, I went to a few different conferences and to, to get like quotes from people that I could, you know, put online. And we talked about spore-forming probiotics and uh, there were some researchers that were like, that's a bad idea. Like, we don't know what that's going to do in the human gastrointestinal tract. And, like, that could be potentially really dangerous, you know, but we just don't have, like, the clinical data to show what's going on either way. They're not sold as drugs. They're sold as supplements. And so that level of testing isn't required, um, at least in the U.S., you know, when, when we're when we put things on market, if something has existed prior to 1994, we've got the Food and Drug Administration, but they're not drugs. So if it, if it existed prior to 1994, you just kind of say, like, hey, I'm going to sell this thing. And the FDA is like, OK. And then the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, controls what what type of claims you can make. But as long as you don't claim to treat, cure, or prevent a disease, you can make general structure claims like supports a healthy immune system or whatever you want. And you really just have to provide like a piece of, you know, evidence to say that it's, it's safe, not that it's effective. And what really happens is that, you know, they regulate these things sort of after the fact. So if like someone did get sick or died or something like that, then be like, oh, okay, we can't, you know, you can't be selling this stuff. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind that like, just because probiotics are, are, um, you know, natural doesn't mean that they're like safe across the board for everyone. Um, especially when it's kind of these newer varieties that don't have, uh, you know, kind of the years of research behind them in the same way that we see with like lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. So, so we're probably keep to the older ones that we've, we've been studied a bit more and probably only use after something like antibiotics. But maybe. Women is Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a recent article that showed that individuals who took lac a lactobacilli containing um, probiotic after antibiotic supplementation actually had delayed reestablishment of their native uh, microbiome. And it was that better to do a, an autologous fecal transplant. So they basically took their own fecal samples beforehand, then they took the antibiotics, and then they took the fecal transplant from themselves, and they returned very quickly. Um, and then second in line to that were the people who just like went back to what they were doing, you know, just like the wait and, wait and watch, you know, go back to your regular diet and lifestyle. Um, so it could be that. And then there are some folks who seem to be kind of resistant to enrichment. So they're given a probiotic um, and then, uh, you know, they're, the whole treatment group is, is given a probiotic. And then some people, they say they see that like in the cecum, in the actual GI tract, they do see an enrichment of the strains from the probiotic. And then other individuals, they don't. Um, but despite the fact that their fecal samples will all have like the same um, increase in those probiotic specific strains. So what goes out isn't always indicative of what's going on on the inside. And we don't necessarily know that you know, everyone's going to respond to them in the same way. Um, and that I would say it's probably best to um, take them in, in response to, you know, a, 
like an issue, if you're having like diarrhea, um, or if you have something that, you know, it could be potentially um, synergistic with whatever, you know, drug you're taking, like if you have colitis or something. Um, and, you know, and, and maybe as in a, in a preventative way, I guess, in terms of like, if you are going to travel, um, but just, yeah, realizing that it, it might not do anything or it might harm. Wow. So it may be a big waste of money. So many people. Like, yeah. I was, probiotics. I was going to say the same thing. A lot of people are probably wasting a lot of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially the ones that are like, you know, probiotics, like sold for women or probiotics yeah. sold for men. And, um, there's just not compelling data that like, that's a necessary thing to do. Oh yeah. Jeez. Well, that's like, just... my daughter's got kids probiotics that her mum gave her. And I, I just don't bother giving them to her. I just don't. Yeah. I just make sure she doesn't tell her mum when she's a mum. Yeah. Um, well, let's hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Have your cod liver oil, fine. But that waste of time back in the cupboard is fine. <laughs> yeah. um, and what about sort of these sort of natural anti, um, like microbials? Is that antimicrobials like coconut oil, like the mm. coconut oil craze? How does that affect yeah. the microbiome? Yeah, I've seen, yeah, coconut oil, um, oil of oregano. Yeah. Um, you know, again, that's going to be kind of a dose-dependent um, and, and microbe-dependent and also surface-dependent. So we might see that, you know, like honey is sort of like a nat natural, like antibacterial, you know, you can, you, like honey doesn't really go bad or rancid or whatever. You know, you can find honey that's like super, super old. Um or, you know, I'm trying, I think those are the things that are like coming up off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, oil of oregano, I know of because it's really big in sort of like the kind of the naturopathic world, um, you know, in functional medicine world. Not to say that all of it is completely bunk. I mean, there are some RCTs that I've seen that show that, oh, yeah, you know, some, some um, naturally occurring compounds can be antimicrobial, can modulate cholesterol metabolism can do a whole host of things. So not to say that, you know, all forms of natural medicine are not evidence-based, but to assume that we can use something to preferentially affect only pathogenic bacteria, or that we can do something like a yeast cleanse, or that um, taking, you know, coconut oil or oil of oregano is going to be as effective as an antibiotic, that's patently false. Those are the things, that's where we get into kind of dangerous territory, where we are eschewing um, modern medicine uh, in favor of something that's like natural, but might be completely ineffective um, or much less effective and then, you know, potentially risking health. Yeah, the, the, gut, uh, the gut seems just as intricate as uh, like the nervous system or fascia, like it's just... There's still a lot to be discovered, I think. All <laughs> well, I'm thinking is oil of oregano sounds like it'd be great on a pizza. Yeah, I have, I have some you want. Yeah, it's harsh. I've heard that it I know, yeah. It sounds like it'd be great, but I've heard that it tastes super, super bad. It's strong. I, yeah, I, I have yeah. some well, I and it is. That's why I don't like coconut oil. It doesn't taste good. It smells funky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oil of oregano is very it's harsh it's, cause, it's uh, very peppery yeah because when i yeah. when you take it it's like quick and then sounds delicious though it's disgusting it, it's, it's so it's, disgusting it's, it's, it's not and then delicious. it makes all your cups smell of oregano forever yeah oh. you have, you, no, no. we have like a special cup 
if, if the oregano to... cup. Yeah. And Gabrielle, you've been doing, I th- was it, was it yesterday you were doing a webinar about resistance training and the yes. gut microbiome? Um, <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds very interesting. Um, well, I mean, we should all register yeah. for the webinar to get that info. Know, but, this one, so, yeah, so this one's actually, that was, a, that was just an IGTV. So, oh, fortunately, okay. you, can, you can get okay. that for free. Ah. Um, so, yeah, that's on my wall. But, um, yeah, that's the, the, so I met this faculty member, um, Dr. Jeremy Townsend, last year, um, the beginning, or, yeah, it was the beginning of last year um, at an ISSN conference, and he presented on probiotic supplementation of collegiate athletes. And um, he had looked at some inflammatory markers, and I was, you know, I, I was very curious because obviously, like that was parallel to to my research in probiotics. Um, and so I just, you know, connected with him. I said, "Hey, I still write about the gut microbiome and present and whatnot. I speak about it a lot um, in social the social media sphere. And RP will quite often provide funding for you know support." um projects and whatnot and research and exercise science so months later we talked about it i got on with you know mike and nick from rp and said like can we you know support this in some way i went out to tennessee for a week and we designed the study we wrote the grant and everything and the study is now underway um unfortunately not out in arizona but um we still you know are are collaborating whatnot emailing and, and video chatting um, and yeah, so we are studying the effects of resistance training on exercise induced gastrointestinal syndrome and markers of inflammation and intestinal permeability in collegiate athletes. And we're also going to be looking at some uh, gender, potential gender specific differences. So females are much more likely to experience um, EIGS than males. And we quite often see it in endurance athletes, but there's really no data on the effects of resistance training in the gut microbiome. Um, so we're going to be looking into that. So we're measuring um, intestinal permeability through um, these the, a couple of these probes. They're of different sizes, and you can measure clearance into the blood. And from there, you can kind of estimate, you know, if there's some altered intestinal permeability. Uh, we're going to be looking at two different markers of, of inflammation, uh, one that's kind of just a general, I think it's TNF-alpha, and then we're going to be looking at um, uh, calprotectin. And we're also going to be looking at short chain fatty acid production. So, um, you know, we, we see that, that butyrate uh, usually is the one that's uh, produced by bacteria in the guts of people who are really physically active and elite athletes. Um, recently, propionate has come onto the scene um, as one that's being produced by a specific taxa called valinella, and that seemed to be associated with increased exercise performance. Um, and they gave that to mice. Uh, they gave them like a propionate enema and mice did better on a treadmill. So that's kind of compelling to look at. So, uh, yeah. And then, um, you know, comparing just the baseline sort of, you know, do we see differences in male versus female collegiate athletes? Because there are some gender specific differences in, in some groups of bacteria. Uh, but it's going to be really, I mean, this is the first study of its kind and hopefully starts to lay the groundwork for what we might be looking for. Um, you know, with resistance training, or maybe nothing will happen, and it's just it's only endurance training that you know really causes issues. We have no idea because like no one has ever done this before, so it's really yeah. exciting. So that's what we were talking about yesterday. That, that is exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's Jeez. just so much, yeah, so much to learn still. Yeah. Oh yeah. In relation to the resistance training, I've got a question. More for uh-huh. cause I don't know if you bodybuilders listen to the podcast. Yeah. They probably won't know. Do anabolics 
and other performance enhancing drugs have an effect on the gut microbiome or has that never been studied I imagine it's not been studied because yeah no not been studied um though there is there's emerging literature on um the uh i want to call it the estrobolome um but how the microbiome metabolizes circulating estrogens and estrogen metabolites and that may play a role in risk for breast cancer so that is so um, and then, you know, a lot of people are talking about, like oral contraceptives and whatnot. And like, for some reason, there's a belief that, that OCs like have a significant effect on the, um, microbiome, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The drugs that we see have the most significant effects would be, uh, metformin. And so, um, I, I know that people on peds will sometimes like use metformin, I think, because it helps with insulin, yeah. something and <laughs> glucose disposal. Yeah, so that's, that's one. Uh huh. Yeah, and then um, uh, and PPIs, so uh, proton pump inhibitors, like antacids. Yeah. So those mm-hmm. have a really significant effect on on the GI on, on the microbiome. Yeah, no, um, I've got a genetic predisposition to high blood glucose. So instead of going on metformin, I decided to use berberine. Ah, mm-hmm. I was seeing what effect that's having because that also does a similar thing. It messes with. It glucose you know could block the glucose i'm not sure anyone truly knows the mechanism but yeah. whether it blocks glucose absorption or you know uh, yeah yeah but yeah so i would imagine you know i i would imagine that there's a potential there but um probably not as much as you know drugs that we would take i, I guess it would depend on the route like if it's an injected one versus something that someone's taking orally or some probably something orally ingested might have you know a, a more significant effect if it's something that would reach the large intestine. But if it's something that's going to be broken down and absorbed in the small intestine, um, probably not. So that that's kind of like my that is completely a guess. I mean, I really have no idea because from yeah. what <laughs> I know, you know, I, I haven't seen anything. But I've been asked about that a couple times. So I feel like it's probably worth you know like taking a taking a look. I haven't taken a hard look in the, in the literature to look. I imagine we have like pets when we're looking at you know performance and drugs in general. You, you, there's studies on how hormones affect you know. Um, microbiome, I have a similar sort of mm-hmm. research benefit, you know, obviously, as we said, we all contraception, estrogen plays a significant part in the bodybuilders, and yeah. you know, obviously, so look at the hormone sites, right, effects of high testosterone, super physiological doses, you know, yeah, not, you know testosterone in a person, you know, may right. or may not have an effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so much to fund it, though. I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Of funding for it, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. But so for everyone listening, you don't need to do detox cleanses. <laughs> Stick yeah. to one yeah. protein bar a day. Two. two. Yeah. I'll go for two if you're being crazy. Sorry, sorry. Go for two. You'll save a lot of money. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> you can drink your diet coke. Yeah. <laughs> and eat a good variety of plants. Um, yes. <laughs> as usual, exactly. just yeah, be sensible. Yeah. I know, right? I don't know why it has to be any more complex than that. Be sensible. Get some physical activity in regularly. Um, yeah, those are the biggest things. But people are like, tell me what sense. pill to take. Yeah, yes, yeah. Tell me what pill to take. What probiotic. Be sensible yeah, is, is too, it's too simple. It's, too, it's not sexy they, enough. Yeah, they, the humans, yeah. we want, you know, 
jump, go up the okay. hill, down the hill, swim. We want yeah. a you know, <laughs> complex gut protocol to follow. Yep. <laughs> I know. I should. I could probably design. I'll, I'll be like, here are the, the you know, here's the, the steps to your to, gut protocol. Yeah. Step one, <laughs> analyze the number of plants in your diet. <laughs> Increase it. Step two, physical activity. I'll just come up with all these steps. <laughs> and the outcome <laughs> plants at each meal, some level of physical activity. Yeah. You'd be able to put in a little paper back and sell it. It'd be a bestseller. Oh, it would be, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I believe me. I've, I've like, if I would take, I'm sure if I took like supplement uh, sponsorships and whatnot, you know, to for a probiotic or something, it would be like I'd have a yacht or something that I just, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I a dog farm. <laughs> yes, a dog, dog farm. <laughs> yeah, maybe goes everywhere. Yeah. Um, no, so um, anyone who wants to uh, follow Dr. Fandalo um, on uh, Instagram it is, I think, vitamin PhD. Mm-hmm. Yep, vitamin PhD, and then I have vitaminphdnutrition.com, although I have not updated my website in a long time, so I'm like way behind. I've got podcasts I want to share. Um, and then there's also um, the coaching side of things that I do um, with Shannon Beard, that's BTG Comprehensive Coaching um dot com and we've got our um article series up there and future webinar series and things like that so those are sort of my two hats that i wear one is the you know like gut health thing and you know um all of that side and then coaching and um i just like to you know follow whatever interests i have at the time i guess (laughs) so i've done a gajillion sports and not (laughs) really stuck to any of them no, I love it. Well, we'll we'll link all that info um, where people can find you and follow all your amazing info. And uh, yeah, we you can watch that IGTV on uh, the resistance training. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That'd be great. Thank you so yeah. much. No, thank, thank you so you. much. We really enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, our internet has held strong. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> asleep. Yay. Dogs are asleep. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my gosh, they're so crazy. Thanks again, Gabrielle. You're very welcome. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye.